Well, hello, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. I have a fourth-time returning participant to the podcast today. This is Dr. Jeffrey Kripal. I want to introduce him, and then I'll get to some housekeeping details, and then we'll get started. So firstly, I'd like to read his bio, and if you'd like, check out his website at Jeffrey J. Kripal, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-J-K-R-I-P-A-L.com. Jeffrey J. Kripal is the Associate Dean of the School of Humanities and holds the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University, where he chaired the Department of Religion for eight years and helped create the GEM program, a doctoral concentration in the study of Gnosticism, Esotericism, and Mysticism that is the largest program of its kind in the world. He presently helps direct the Center for Theory and Research at Etzlin Institute in Big Sur, California, where he served as the chair of the board from 2015 to 2020. Jeff is the author or co-author of 12 books, eight of which are with the University of Chicago Press. He has also served as the editor-in-chief of the Macmillan Handbook Series on Religion, 10 volumes from 2015 to 2016. He specializes in the study of extreme religious states and the revisioning of a new comparativism, particularly as both involve putting the impossible back on the table again. He is presently working on a three-volume study of the paranormal currents in the history of religions and the sciences for the University of Chicago Press, collectively entitled The Superstory. And today, his book, which I've taken the jacket off, is The Superhumanities. The Superhumanities I thoroughly enjoyed. Of course, full disclosure is I thoroughly enjoy Jeff's work, all of it, uh, which is why I've had him on the podcast four times. He is tuned in. So now I'd like to talk a little bit about... Um, Essentially, this conversation goes into Kripal's work emphasizing the need for scholars in the humanities to expand their focus beyond empirical data and scientific methods to explore the strange and mysterious phenomena of life. By doing so, we can gain a deeper understanding of what it means to be human and how we can navigate the, complexity, the complexities of the world around us. And that's certainly his, uh, his lane. It's all the weird stuff, all the stuff that we don't really understand. <laughs> Uh, so thanks, Jeff, as always, for participating, for your support, and for your continued, um, well, for your continued support. Thank you very much. Uh, I do have Jeff to thank um, for Eslin. I, I just got back from teaching at Eslin, led a workshop with Rodney Waters on ecstatic experience, music, and Jung's Red Book. It was fantastic. Thank you for all who joined. We will be going back to Eslin in October, so take a be on the lookout for a workshop. We're capping it at, uh, at I think, around 30 people, so sign up quick as soon as we start releasing it. So it was a good group. Uh, yeah, thank you all, really. For those of you that were there, that was fantastic. Um, <clears throat> so upcoming interviews, I've got a couple. Um, Ed Be Dr. Edward, Edward Bever, we talked about magic in the modern world and his research on the witch trials in a small town in Germany. Um, and then I've also got Hunt Priest and Jessica Felix Romero, um, from Ligare, which is, I want to read this really quickly because this is really cool what they're up to. So Ligare, um, to join or link, classically understood as the linking of human and divine, are a group of clergy, chaplains, religious educators, scholars, spiritual guides, philanthropists, and researchers dedicated to bringing the direct experience of the sacred to all who desire it through the ritualized engagement with psychedelic substances within the context of the Christian contemplative tradition. It's a cool interview. Um, it'll be out in, um, I think, about three weeks, because I'll get the uh, the interview on magic out first. Um, also, check out The Sacred Speaks, thesacredspeaks.com, new website out. Um, we've got a new series being released in the next several months. 
Um, as always, the, the Sacred Speaks is sponsored by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. It's a boutique integrative wellness clinic that my wife and I started in Houston, Texas. Check us out at the center for HAS.com. Uh, and the music is from Modern Nations. At the very end of the episode, you'll hear the whole selection called Clouds um, that Modern Nations prepared. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. And as always, check out the Young Center in Houston, younghouston.org. Great classes, great events, uh, good stuff going on over there. And uh, for now, I think that's it. So we will leave it there. And thank you for joining us and enjoy the interview. Jeff Kripal. <laughs> this is great, man. You're, you're, as I was saying before, Walter Honegraaff is the is the one that did a morning recording for me, but for him it was, you know, at four yeah. in the afternoon. And, I, <laughs> and he, you're the only person I know who'll engage with me at uh, four thirty in the morning. So, yeah, um, my morning is interesting. I got up at uh, at two o'clock this morning because I was so excited about chatting with you, and uh, just started to digging, you know, consolidating my thoughts and really digging in. But you know, this is your fourth time on this project, and you were the first person that I wanted to uh, begin <laughs> it with. So. Thank you, man, for always being so willing to uh, not only create the work that you do, but participate in this project I've got going on. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you're doing it. I mean, somebody needs to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, uh, I've read a couple of, uh, of your uh, pieces of work in preparation, um, some of your paper on Nietzsche, and then yeah. all of your, your book, uh, this book, The Superhumanities, we're going to talk about today. Yeah. And... Okay. Uh, and so there's there's my setup. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I mean, it's it's kind of the same old, same old, isn't it? It's just Jeff saying the same thing he always says, but it, in a di in a different way, I guess. You being uh, humble in that way is the same old, same old. Nothing about your books is the same old, same old. And I guess uh, this gets into it actually. Like my, I am a beneficiary of the meta process of what you're talking about, because I actually have some pretty radical experiences when I read your books. Yeah. And, you know, I can tell the kind of dual layer of your, your reporting information, but you're also providing an experience. And I guess on some level, all books do that, but there's, there's a real intentionality and depth to those uh, kind of dual layers. Also, your human is too, uh, byline that kind of threads through every one of your books. But just to start, I want anybody who, um, to get to know you a little bit, of course, anybody watching or listening to this can, can check out three previous episodes on the podcast with Jeff Kripal, um, and, and importantly, the first, which was symbolic and important for me to connect with you at the beginning. But I want you to like introduce yourself a little bit, but also talk about what this book is, and then I'll dig into <clears throat> some of the questions I've got. Okay, sure. So... My name's Jeff Kripal, obviously. <laughs> you already said that. Um, I'm a um, professor of religion at Rice University in Houston, Texas. I've been working for four years, actually, now in university administration. I'm an associate dean of the School of Humanities. And it's really that work, um, what the Germans call the Sitzenleben, the, the situation in life that produced this particular volume. Um Associate deans are not supposed to write books, by the way, John. So it's it's <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing. I I sheepishly admitted to my dean that I had written this book, and she was very generous and grand as she always is. But um, 
I wrote this at four in the morning, you know, that's, yeah. that's how you, that's how I write books. And it doesn't really matter what I'm doing in the day, I guess. But it, the book is really about the state of the humanities, um, I think, nationally. I don't want to speak internationally, but certainly nationally. And kind of why we're here and what the challenges are and how to, how to move forward without, frankly, without denying at all what we've been doing, uh, which is wonderful, but, but not sufficient. And um, so it's a kind of both and argument. We need we need all this horizontal um, social and political thought, but we also need a vertical dimension to to add to this two dimensional picture so that people can get excited again about the humanities and really want to do it, essentially. It's it's almost comical how much weirder your book is than the title might suggest. Because <laughs> somebody might see a title like Humanities and you know do what we've done and certainly what you reference, like think it's a kind of laborious, played out afterthought in the tome of uh, the Academy. But it it is weird and a it's weird and it's wild, and that certainly is something that um, threads all your books together. I don't, you know, John, I don't think, I don't think anyone really knows what the humanities are. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, if you ask most of my colleagues, what are the humanities, they would just kind of look at you and they would, or they would name a set of departments or, or disciplines, but they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have thought about what ties the humanities together. And I think at least at Rice, unfortunately, the humanities are seen as, you know, kind of an appendage mm -hmm. uh, to the STEM disciplines. My my friend and colleague Timothy Morton, he says, you know, the way the public thinks of us is that we're candy sprinkles on the cake of science, <laughs> and uh, you know, I don't personally. None of us think we're candy sprinkles, and I, you know, I want to say something about the cake too, and yeah. particularly about its eating. I I I think that what the humanities really are about are the eating of the cake, and um, certainly not the candy sprinkles, um, and so. You know, that's another metaphor, of course, but that's what the book is about. Just trying to get people excited about what 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 could happen mm. in these these realms of of thinking and teaching and writing. Well, a reference you made in the book comes to mind where you say that you can't uh, you'll, you'll fix this. I hope that you can't you can't understand a poem by counting the words. Right. I love that. Yeah, and it goes deeper than that, though. <laughs> You know, I mean, you talk about the weird. I mean, essentially the argument of the book is that the people we revere in the humanities were weird. And they had altered states of consciousness and embodiment and, you know, had things like precognitive dreams and out-of-body experiences and mystical experiences of unity with the cosmos. And the, the, these altered states and embodiment are, in fact, the origins of their thinking and are encoded in their books. And we just ignore that in general. We pretend that you know, they somehow rationally or cognitively came to these things. That's just, it doesn't happen that way. Nobody thinks their way to these ideas. They, they get, you know, propelled or rocketed into outer space and then they come back and say these things. Well, let me, let me begin, uh, by quoting, this is, this is what's great, Jeff, about, reading you as you always introduce me to new people 
and um, <laughs> Nisargadatta. Oh, Nisargadatta, yeah, uh -huh. yeah, sure. Uh -huh. I, I want to quote this because I want people to understand how just how weird it gets, <laughs> <laughs> um, and even weirder than this uh, by a, a number of uh, lines. So this is going to be a longer quote. This is uh, on page seventy of your book. Um, consider the more typical lines from Nisargadatta. The way to truth lies through the destruction of the false. To destroy the false, you must question your most inveterate beliefs. Of these, the idea that you are the body is the worst. With the body comes the world, with the world God, who is supposed to have created the world, and thus it starts. Fears, religions, prayers, sacrifices, all sorts of systems. All to protect and support the child man, frightened out of his wits by monsters of his own making. This is you. Religion is childish illusion. Freud could, not been as, uh, Freud could not have said it better and did not. And then you start again with uh, Nisargadatta. If you seek reality, you must set yourself free of all backgrounds, of all cultures, of all patterns of thinking and feeling. Even the idea of being man or woman, or even human, should be discarded. The ocean of life contains all, not only humans. So first of all, abandon all self-identification. Stop thinking of yourself as such and such, this or that. So what are we? We are something else or other entirely. That which makes you think you are human is not human. It is but a dimensionless point of consciousness. A conscious nothing. All you can say about yourself is I am. You are pure being awareness bliss. To realize that is the end of all seeking. You come to it when you see all you think yourself to be as mere imagination and stand aloof in the pure awareness of the transient as transient, imaginary as imaginary, unreal as unreal. Would you comment on uh, on these ideas that are very odd to us today? We'll certainly get into what you call decolonize the the humanities, but let's uh, let's talk about these quotes for a while. Yeah, I mean, so Nisargadatta was a um, a guru or spiritual teacher who lived in Bombay or Mumbai in the 70s and 80s and you know he was teaching out of a, a a very familiar philosophical and mystical tradition uh, that, that was non-dual and generally the the, argu the argument i'm trying to make in this book is look if we're going to take these other cultures if we're going to take diversity seriously and 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 i and we should we also have to take ontological diversity seriously. We have to let these people challenge our views of reality. And Nisargadatta is going after the basic, you know, the very basic argument of the humanities, which is that you are your body. You know, I mean, that's really the argument. You are your body. The The social ego is embodiment, is your body. That's, that's what you are. You are a political animal. Who of course is dying and and um, scraping for resources, and what the Sargadat is saying is no, you're not. Uh, that, <laughs> that's that's the illusion right there. That's that's the biggest problem in the world right there. And so what he's saying is all all the entire humanities is simply wrong to to assume that. And I want us to hear that and to consider that. I personally think it's true, by the way. Um, and I think that's what serious humanities do is they take their sources as saying something true and real and not just not just describing it or not just, you know, 
locating its historical context or its social social function, which is what we generally do. Because we don't want to listen. We don't want to hear <laughs> the message. We want to talk about the message's social or historical form. Well, and you, you write a lot about this. We we almost immediately, and I, I, I'm a psychotherapist. I think that I see... I see what you talk about in terms of what I tend to see in the individual's psychological yeah. makeup, you know, like yeah. D Freud talked a lot about this, uh, defense mechanisms and how we deny and discredit and project and reject that which doesn't fit into our particular mode of existing or mode of understanding. And as we, as we culture up and broaden the amount of, uh, of eyeballs and ears in the, in the pool, um, those tendencies become larger as well. And so we see this critique um, that that on some level seeks to justify one's position as opposed to... I mean, you see this in every marriage. You see this in every conflict where um, my perceptions are the ways in which I see the world and I reject anything that would would, uh, would challenge that uh, primacy of my own impulses and thoughts. And you're doing this on a larger spectrum. Well, yeah, this is not psychotherapy. I mean, I, and I'm not sure it's healing in a in a personal. <laughs> it might just be. <laughs> I think it is, man. Yeah, I think it might be messing things up. I, <laughs> you know, first of all, I've been in psychotherapy on numerous occasions. I love psychotherapy. I love I love psychoanalysis. I think it's all powerful and and really important. But psychotherapy is aimed at making an individual functioning function mm. and within a particular social system and sometimes those social systems are fucked up to put it <laughs> put it bluntly I, I wouldn't say sometimes i would say always they're always fucked up oh, and so what i'm what psychotherapy is doing i think often is getting us to adjust to systems that are unjust and and unreal mm. um and, you know, I have these conversations with my colleagues at the university all the time. They, they call me an optimist, by the way. Um, and I'm like, well, yeah, that's because I don't hold your worldview, which is really pessimistic. It's really dark and depressing, frankly, at the end of the day. And I do think that we are something grand and cosmic and we're not we're not just these these dying bodies. So, of course, I'm an optimist. Uh, and of course, you're a pessimist, <laughs> and that—that's—that's that's the problem right there, in my opinion. Is who wants to hear? Who wants to hear us? You know, be the bummer in the room, and and it's a big bummer. I'll tell you that. Um, and it's not that the big bummer is not true. It's true on another level. It's absolutely yeah. true, um, and I, so I want to say that too. But it's not everything that's true and it's not ultimately what's true because we all of course die we all shed our bodies and then what well we don't know because we don't talk about it and we don't we don't take those those people seriously who come back from that and tell us what's what's on the other side we just dismiss it all so. well i want to i want to as a psychotherapist i want to validate that because certainly in family systems i i work with I've worked and will continue to work with kids and adolescents, and oftentimes what happens is the family brings a, a young person in, and the implication is is fix them. And what that means is right. 
make them make sense in our social system, this this family system. Yeah. And my hope is that I don't become a mouthpiece or an extension of that value system, which oftentimes corrupts the developing uniqueness of the child. Um, although there are social pressures, certainly, because I'm I'm simultaneously a social well, being. Well, we we have the same challenge, John. You know, in 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 college education, as we get we get young people at eighteen, generally, right when they've left their family. And our goal, certainly in the humanities, is to is reflexivity, which which is simply to help them step outside their their culture and their society and their family and to think back on it in a critical way and that that can be very destabilizing and yeah. very scary it can also be very liberating um and it's really interesting to watch the kids react very differently to that some of them are genuinely excited some of them are horrified mm -hmm. and it's the same, it's the same message. It's the same skill set. Can you step out of what your culture and your society and your family assume? Or can you not? Maybe you can't. Well, then don't take these courses. Don't, <laughs> don't sit with us for four months and, and hear what you can't hear. Yeah. But if you can, please come in and let's, let's do this. But again, then what? You know, and that's where there is a there is a an ambivalence and i think a, a good one but you know if a, a mother or a father calls us on the phone and asks us how so-and-so is doing we actually can't say we're legally bound to say you need to talk to your son or your daughter you know you i i cannot share that information with you he this person's an adult so there's a kind of confidentiality that the culture really respects actually i mean i've kind of been shocked over the course of teaching for I'm over 30 years now i think i've had i think i've dealt with two or three parents in my whole life um so there's something about that magic number 18 and the the, the legal system and the awareness that something needs to happen in the college education that i think is really amazing um, and that people respect and, and, and acknowledge. And, and so I, I, it's like psychotherapy, you know, <laughs> hopefully you're, hopefully you're, you're yeah, hopefully you're, you're people who don't go back and, and their parents don't, you know, wiggle out everything that was said in therapy. Mm -hmm. Ho hopefully not. Um, that certainly doesn't happen on the educational level. And I, and I think for really good reason, actually. Well, it, it reminds me of what um, Jim Hollis, in an interview early on, he, I think it was the fourth interview I did in the project, he said that the liberal arts are to do what they suggest, to liberate. And yeah. back to Nisargadatta, he says, to be a person is to be asleep. <laughs> right. Right. And, so that's the opposite. That's the opposite of what most people think the humanities are. We're here to make you a person, right? In other words, we're to put you to sleep. <laughs> Yeah, but your your commentary is that in in the best of times the humanities liberates and expands and reminds the person of uh, this dual allegiance that that we have. And 
But in in so many ways, after reading you and Valter, certainly, you know, the 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 academy has a way of critiquing and um, discounting and 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 cutting off or cutting out powerful experiences for for some good reasons, obviously, and and sometimes not so good. Would you talk about that from the perspective of the academy? Yeah, yeah. Let me. Let me talk about that with with the metaphor that the book opens with. Actually, let's, um, Superman. Let's talk about Superman. Um, you know, it's an American myth. It's it's of course gendered. There's all kinds of problems with it, but it works uh, because everybody knows it. And so I have young people come to me all the time, wanting to mostly do doctoral work. The undergraduates don't know what I do, but the doctoral students definitely know what I do. And, they apply to come and study with us. And they want to be professors of the paranormal. That's what that's really what they want to do. <laughs> I mean, deep down, that's what they want to do. And so I sit down with them and I say, look, I know you're Superman. Um, I know you can fly. Maybe you've flown. But we're here to teach you how to be Clark Karen. But we know you're Superman. The problem is that Superman never gets a job, right? Ever. Mm-hmm. Only Clark Kent gets a job. And it's a boring job, by the way. He has to go to the Daily Planet and he has to write copy for this newspaper and pretend he's not Superman. He has to put on his glasses and, you know, fumble around with Lois Lane and so on. <laughs> and so the 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 message is, you know, not not to be one or the other, but to acknowledge that you're both, but to live on these two planes and to accept them both and to, in this case, master the skills that Clark needs to, to you know, live in the world, but also not deny these vertical experiences where Superman comes in. And I think that's what we've done. I think we, we have focused entirely on Clark Kent. We've, we've denied that there's a Superman. Um, and again, that's what this—that's why it's called the superhumanities. This <laughs> is, hey, you know what? Um, the human's actually a superhuman. Sorry about that. And maybe we should talk. Maybe we should be talking about and writing about that too, and and not just not just reducing everything to the human. Well, and that's—I think that's why I. One reason why I respond so favorably to your your books is the reminder of mm-hmm. that. Uh, Young once remarked that we use the instrument of our consciousness to analyze the instrument of our consciousness, mm-hmm. and so to to see from outside of myself and to remember the this dual inheritance, you know that I am, uh, I, I am way beyond all the thoughts that I think I am. And you know, you you alluded to this earlier, John, but so readers have really strange experiences around these books. Uh, and the reason I know that is they tell me. Of course they do. Right? <laughs> they 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 write they write me very long emails yes. and they and they and the la- the last one I got actually is is actually kind of funny. Um I showed up um in the bedroom of this sleeping couple, you know, and I was talking at night and both the the husband and the wife heard me, you know, and heard my footsteps and I was like well, first of all, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> Second of all, I have no, you know, that's a, I have no memory of that. It's not me. 
Um, I think it's them, obviously, yeah. that's doing this. But I do think um, I do think that the books authorize them to have these kinds of experiences and enable them to have these kinds of experiences. I think sometimes they think I'm I'm some kind of magus, you know, great mag magus totally. figure, you know, uh, uh, flying through the the astral plane and showing up in their bedrooms, and I'm like, you know. I didn't do that. Um, or if I did, I'm not aware of that. And um, I think it's you. I think I think you're actually the superhuman and you had this experience of this presence in your in your in your bedroom. Um so I, I think that's like certainly that's what I intend. I mean, I don't intend to show up, you know, <laughs> there, but I, I do intend to, for people to have these kinds of experiences and then to embrace them and acknowledge them and and weave them into their worldview that that's very much part of the intention so this well why do you think we just don't acknowledge these experiences because you're setting up the the argument that you know and and all of the folks you you referenced to you peter, peter kingsley in his book catafalque that you and i have talked about and you've written a paper on um, he begins talking about that we we forget that we are living out the archetype of the human. You know, we want to talk about all these archetypes, but realizing in the same way that Nisargadatta talks about this being asleep is we a human a human humanness is a lens through which we act and perform and embody. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I guess what I want to start to unpack is this superhuman. What what that means to you and what it is. Well, first of all, again, I'm not, I'm in no way against the human. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a person, <laughs> you know, we're, we're talking, I go to work, I raise a family, I do all the things that people do. So I want to um, affirm mm -hmm. and acknowledge all that. But I just want us to be um, more capacious. And when we have experiences that don't fit into that model i want us to embrace them and listen to them what i what i think is happening john is i think these sorts of impossible experiences are happening to get our attention they're trying to communicate to us they they have a, a if you will they have a psychotherapeutic function they they um and they can't speak in human language. They're not. They're not. They're not languaged in an English sense. So they speak to us in symbols and mm -hmm. signs and synchronicities and physical events. They, you know, they 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 symbolize what they're trying to say. They can't say it explicitly, and that's because they have no language. You know, language is a very human thing. Um, so I guess there is a there is a healing aspect to this. I think there's a part of us trying to speak to this other part of us, and I'm just saying, can't can't we please listen, and and not just as an individual but as a society. Um, I don't think we're really listening. I mean, I think people are fascinated by these things. Uh, you know, if you turn your Netflix on or your Amazon or whatever your streaming service is, it's going to be filled with paranormal shows and series. However, most of those are going to be horror shows. Hmm. And I'm just like, come on. I mean, yeah, these things are sometimes horrific and terrifying, but that's because they're suffering, you know? 
people mm-hmm. are are projecting their suffering into these demons and these possessions and hauntings and so let's address the suffering let's let's listen to this let's not just weave more horror for the sake of you know what they call entertainment um and so that that really worries me frankly and you know a lot of people literally demonize these things john i i don't and i don't mean metaphorically i mm-hmm. mean they say they're demons and i'm just like oh that's that's so wrong um i mean that that may fit their experience of the event but there's still something trying to speak through and to be healed and it's not going to be healed as long as you think it's a demon and are trying to get rid of it you know well i I immediately think of the way that dreams are interpreted and how often i'll have somebody that comes in and there's somebody pursuing the, the 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 dream ego, so to speak, the you that is the dreamer that is embodied in this narrativized form is being pursued by some kind of psychotic killer or something. Yeah. And psychologically speaking, the, often what we want to do is look at that as, well, what's, what are you running from? You know, let's talk about how do, how do we look at the symbol of what, what actually scares you and what are you terrified? What do you feel is going to kill the structure of your existence and the ways in which you've understood yourself. And that broadens and expands things quite a bit for somebody to to kind of turn towards these processes and not look at them like I had a nightmare, holy shit. But well, what am I running from? And what does terrify me? What do I guard and protect against? Yeah. And you know, dreams or nightmares are the model I use to tell, talk to people about the humanist too. Because obviously in a dream like that, the person wakes up and it's like, what the hell is that about? And of course, what it's about is you. And you're telling the story. You're chasing yourself and you're running from yourself. And the healing can only take place when you acknowledge both aspects and, and integrate them into, in, into a psyche or into a conscious life. And I personally think that's what paranormal phenomena are about. I mm-hmm. think they're... they're um, their, their nightmares or their dreams, as it were, that become physicalized in the environment. And they're calling the person or the community or the culture to some kind of greater integration or, or, or healing. And um, again, generally, we're not listening. Um, but sometimes we are, you know, mm-hmm. people do, people do listen, people do change, people do change. Um, so well, That's again. You've said it before, and I'll quote you from a minute ago about how your books do this. You certainly do it, authorizing people to um, to go. Oh yeah, this thing did happen to me, or you know, I've I've never shared this with anybody. You know, those I can't imagine how often you hear that from somebody. That a lot. I'm sure. A lot. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Every time, every time I speak in public, you know, I go somewhere, you know. I'm being driven to dinner or at dinner or somewhere and someone will say, Hey, can I tell you a story? And I'm like, okay, here we go. And it's always some crazy ass story that mm-hmm. there's no way it could have happened, but of course it happened. And the person's usually embarrassed by it and often traumatized by it. And I, sometimes I'm the first person they've told outside their maybe their closest family, but but not always. Um, and I've found that um, 
most intellectuals, frankly, including most scientists, have these stories. Mm -hmm. um, and so people always ask me, you know, I, we've probably talked about it on this show earlier. They're like, well, how do you deal with the pushback? And I'm like, what pushback? Um, hmm. People people are in the closet on this one. Uh, and yeah, there are some people actively resisting it, but they're not very persuasive, frankly. And, you know, they have these really dumb, simplistic answers to things that aren't really plausible answers. And people know it. They're like, yeah, that doesn't really work. Um, so I, I just I just think people are more sympathetic to, to this than we realize. And I just want people who are perceived as authorities, whether they're in the humanities or the sciences, to sort of say that. You know? Well, you I, may you may say it in a car ride with a fellow that writes about this work. You may not say it in a group of five, 10, 20 people that that socialized ego comes online and is very concerned. What do the neighbors think? Well, I want, I, yeah. And so my goal in life, um, you know, you work where you are, John. I don't, I don't pretend the academy or the university is some kind of, it's not the world. It's one slice of the world, but it just happens to be where I am. And so you work where you are and, I just want these people to be more honest and open about this. And, you know, I keep pushing, uh, I keep pushing and pushing and pushing and they do listen. I mean, it does have an effect. It's not, it's not mm -hmm. pointless. Um, mostly people don't want to sound like the tabloids, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're, they're afraid of their status or, they're afraid of being perceived as foolish. And so when someone comes in and starts talking about these things in their own terms, they're like, oh, you can do that. That actually, ma that actually makes a lot of sense. You know? Um, I gave a talk once. Again, we may have talked. I don't know what we've talked about in the earlier episodes, but I gave a talk once and I heard secondhand <laughs> that one of my colleagues said something like, that guy could make UFOs sound Ivy League. And I was like, okay, that's it. That's the, that's the goal right there is to insert, <laughs> insert these wild and crazy topics into a language that they can hear, you know? Um, and it's not, again, it's not the only language. It's not, it's not perfect. It's not complete, but it's a start, you know? What an incredible compliment. Yeah, I, I heard it secondhand. This this person wasn't going to tell me him, himself. It was a he, by the way. Um, but um, I was like, okay, I'll take that secondhand. Yeah. I'll I'll take it. Well, so you're. I know of with with this in mind, you're a collector on some level of stories. I mean, you are literally a curator of stories. Um, I wonder if you could share a few uh, to provide some examples for folks who've not had these kinds of experiences that are these superhuman dimensions that exist in the normative. Well, first of all, archives of the impossible is behind me. I, I, you know, so <laughs> we, we, yes. we start, we started, um, we started a professional archive at Rice around these experiences started in, 2014 actually and again in 2018 and so we've been doing it about five years 
you know, pretty extensively. And by we, I mean the archivists at Rice and myself. I'm I'm leading the charge. I, I interface with the, the 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 writers and the collectors, and then the archivists take over and do the actual physical work. Um, and we're having a, we we had a we I'll just I'll brag for a minute. We had an opening conference last spring in March. Yeah. And we had 1,700 people register, John. Uh, I mean, it just kind of blew up all the IT models. And then when we loaded the, the plenaries, we had 150,000 views in two, in two weeks. And so just to kind of give you a comparison, a typical academic talk gets 500 views in the lifetime of the, of the video. We had 150,000 views in two weeks. And so we're doing it again in May. We're having another big conference. You can go online and, and register. You can register right now, actually. I will. The pro Here's the problem. It's so popular that people are registering at such a rate. I don't know how to feed them. I Seriously, I don't. <laughs> what a metaphor. Yeah. I mean, we're back to the loaves and the fishes, you know, yes. Jesus multiplying. I'm just like. I mean, there's there's well over a hundred people coming, and it's three months out, John. Wow! And so I think we're going to go north of, of about two fifty easily, and heaven only knows what we're going to do digitally. It's it's a dual format that you can register online or in person. Uh, so it's just so there's so much interest. This it's just it's overwhelming and. Um, Okay, so I'll give you I'll give you a couple examples. I'll just I'll give you one that's kind of close to my heart. I've been writing about it actually, speaking about it too. I'll give you two. They're they're related. I personally think that the strongest empirical evidence for anomalous phenomena is precognitive dreaming. I think it's pretty pretty tight and pretty locked down. And it comes with vast philosophical and scientific implications that nobody wants to <laughs> deal with. But these things are just everywhere. And so I'll give so here's an example. Uh, a young girl, seven years old, um, African American, it's probably late 19th century. She's on a porch in Florida, and she goes into what she calls a strange sleep. And she sees 12 scenes in perfect detail. She calls them stereo opticons, which was the language of the time for essentially slides, photographic slides. And these 12 events eventually play out in her life. And she has these precognitions consistently. And as one event happens, it doesn't occur anymore in her in her dream life, only the later ones occur. And she goes through these 12 scenes over the course of her life. Okay, that little girl was Zora Neale Hurston, who was an anthropologist and part of the Harlem Renaissance. And I I don't, nobody's dealing with that. Like, how did little Zora see seven historical scenes from her life, you know, as a seven-year-old girl, then played out you know, sometimes probably decades later. But that means something, mm -hmm. okay? 
All right, so switch to the present a little. This is an email I got a few years ago um, from a, prof he's a professional screenwriter, actually. And he talked about waking up one night. I, at an I forget the time. It was like 11.45 or something. And to this horrible, horrible car accident outside his window. He lived in a, an apartment overlooking a an intersection in this major city and he woke up to this horrible screech and crash and got up and looked outside and and nothing in fact happened um but he heard it all in perfect detail at the exact same time the next night 11 45 he heard the exact same thing and he got up and the car accident had in fact actually happened underneath his window and a person was killed in this this car accident so this person writes me and he says look i saw in perfect detail the night before what was going to happen 24 hours ahead yeah. in space time there's no question about that this wasn't a coincidence this was just obvious to me and and you know my reply was something like well i believe you um, and that tells us something about space and time and and a human life. You know, it tells us that the future is already there in some sense. Um, and you know, you can you can kind of move forward philosophically or or even psychologically, and you but you eventually arrive at this model where the future influences the present and the past. It's not. It does influence doesn't go one way. I think we think tend to think of our lives as the past is might be set, but the future is not. And influence only moves from the past into the present. Influence does not move from the future into the present, right? But it clearly does in these cases. There's no question it does. Zora saw 12 scenes from her future life. I mean, it was the future influencing the present. This man saw this or heard this car accident from the future. This, it's not a question. It's just this is an empirical, you know, phenomenological fact of these people's experiences. So that's the kind of thing I think is just incredibly First of all, these are some of the most important experiences of these people's lives. Mm -hmm. we're, not, we're not talking about tangential things. We're not talking about random things. We're talking about experiences that shake these people to the core and that form their lives. Um, and I think it should form what we do as historians, what we do as scholars of religion, what we do as philosophers, what we do as human beings. I think we should be literally taking these things seriously so that's really what the project's about and uh, it's called archives of the impossible because I, I wrote a book in 2010 as you probably know called authors of the impossible and it it basically does this history of these things through four major writers and archives of the impossible is is it's probably got over a million documents and stories in it now um and that's kind of the problem, John. I mean, nobody, nobody's going to be able to um, read all this stuff. Um, you know, there's no way. <laughs> no. Well, let's let's use that as an anchor point because a couple of ideas that um, 
that, that come off. I mean, one of the things you're talking about is the metaphysical and philosophical and even psychological implications. And who was it? Was it William James that talked about the one black goose? Uh, uh, Swan? Black, one, black crow. Black crow. No, it's white, white crow. crow. White yeah. crow. Yeah, there yeah. we go. White crow. You know, that, that, that to, to say this, and please correct it, is that you know, we can have all kinds of materialist-oriented ideas about reality and how it functions, but if you have one example or one experience that disrupts that or refutes our our understanding, then it throws the whole apple cart uh, up in the air. Yeah, and the so the problem with that metaphor is, you know, nobody ever sees a white crow, um, you know, in in the natural world, but in fact, they're flying around everywhere, you know, and these experiences are not uncommon. Yeah. And that that's my problem with James's metaphor. And you also, frankly, don't, you can be a materialist and still take these things seriously. I mean, one of my closest friends and colleagues, Eric Wargo, I mean, he's, he's very much a materialist, hmm. but he, he is absolutely convinced precognition is a thing and that it's central to um, creativity in particular, literary creativity in particular. And his argument is, look, he says, look, the, the body and the brain, including the mind or the brain, is it's actually spread out through time. We're actually, John John Price and Jeff Kripal are actually not what you're seeing. This is just a slice of us in space and time. But if you looked at our whole lives, we're like this weird, wiggling space-time worm. <laughs> and, and so when my friend, you know, has this precognition of this car accident, What's happening there for Eric is his physical brain on day two is just speaking back along the space-time worm to his physical brain on, on day one. There's no there's no physical separation. It's all one, it's all one body brain space-time worm. So but you know, you have to you actually have to accept space-time. You have to you have to think Einstein and his his teacher Minkowski were, were correct about the relativity of space and time and, and what history really is. Eric does. I mean, Eric, Eric accepts Einstein, but most people don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I, you know, I'm personally not a materialist either, but uh, I'm not a dualist either. And, but I don't, I don't, I don't think it, it you know, different ontological models can take these things seriously. My my point is you my point is not you have to be X Y or Z. Mm-hmm. My point is for God's sake, put keep those on the table, and don't take them off your table, and then try to try to rework your worldview around them, rather than reject what doesn't fit. Yeah, I mean it obviously is part of the world. So how are you going to come up with a model of the world if you're not you're taking off the table all this stuff that doesn't fit your little puny model? Well, and this is the. <laughs> This is the aggression that we have to engage in in order to make that make sense, right? I have to say you're full of shit, or you don't know what you're talking about, or that is nothing but a so on and so forth, or just a... I mean, this happens in the psychedelic community all the time around, that's just a molecule, you know, you're just... You're just having which, which of course, is not an explanation at all. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you just think about it for two seconds, that actually explains absolutely nothing. Like... <laughs> That's just a rhetorical <laughs> device. Like, what? I mean, mm-hmm. how does a molecule produce 
an out of body experience that that just makes no sense i mean how do you get from a to z well you don't but if you just say oh it's it's the molecule people just believe you and they go on and you're like i'm like that's stupid yeah but okay if that makes you feel better i guess you can think that but it's not true by the way so it doesn't make any sense well, in this, I, I immediately go into previous conversations we've had about metaphysics. So how, you know, th this is not necessarily our conversation today, but you have written extensively on these subjects of, of, of what it means to look at the metaphysics of uh, a dual theory, a dual aspect monism. Yeah, is, yeah. Uh, you know, what I learned from you. Um, well, the, the reason, you know, so we're not, I, I'm not a professional philosopher, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in metaphysics as an abstract exercise. Why I think it's so important is because it will determine what you put on your table and what you take off your table. And I think there are these unconscious assumptions that people are making about metaphysical topics that really determine that. And I think that's a problem. Um, you know, the joke I always tell is I, you know, I have these, these friends who like think they can explain everything. And I'm just like, well, of course you think you can explain everything. You've taken the, off the table everything you can't explain. <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's a trick. It's just, you're just, you're just a magician, you know, on a stage. You're not really taking a human being seriously. You're, you're only taking a, the part of human being seriously that you can model and explain. So how do you start to explain these experiences that you just keep them on your table, John, you just, you know, and it's okay not to understand it. It's okay not to be able to explain it. I, you know, I, I don't think you can, by the way. I mean, that's why, you know, if you read the book, the, I know you read the book with the super humanities, there's a whole chapter in there on the apophatic and yeah. essentially what it argues is you cannot language or reason your way to consciousness it won't work and you know what i always tell people is look the reason i'm so obsessed with ufos is because i don't understand them and neither do you and nor does anyone else so it's like a really provocative question it's productive if i understood what these things were I wouldn't be studying them. I wouldn't waste my time trying to explain something that's already been explained. So I, I, and I think the purpose of these events is to confuse us. I really do. I think the befuddlement, the bedazzlement, though, you know, the what the fuck just happened kind of feeling. <laughs> I think that's part of the phenomenon, John. I think that's all intended and i think to the extent that we want to explain them and turn them into something we understand i think i think that's a mistake so when i you know i don't i don't know what a lot of, i don't know what any of this stuff is but when somebody says to me oh i under i know what it is i'm like no you don't i mean you're either deluded or you're working out of ignorance but in fact, you don't know. 
Um, so the fact that, you know, we don't know what we don't know, I think is, is certain. Um, the idea that someone knows, I think is a, is a deep mistake. So <laughs> you've been studying UFOs a long time. This is not necessarily in our, in my notes. Well, but... It's a good, it's a good example of the superhumanities. I mean, yeah, I mean, it is. it's what I'm talking about. I mean, I, there, I don't think there are any UFOs in that book, but it's, no. it's, it's a, it's a it's a good example that people in the humanities don't talk about things but should and yeah so i'm sorry i interrupted you what were you going to no, ask you're, no it's a, it's a great opportunity to 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 jump into that 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 you have accumulated and curated experiencers firsthand reports of visitations of visions and one of the things you're saying if, is that most people hear that and go what the fuck you know like come on you know and what's so beautiful about what you're doing is you're saying no i i, I don't think it's necessarily what it is you think it is but i think it's worth exploring and connecting with is that a fair statement yeah but i would remove the word the adverb necessarily i i don't i don't think it is what you say it is i just don't <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, it's a blunt <laughs> statement, but you you are so wrong. And, yeah. and it has consequences, John. It has serious consequences. So, so, for example, take the disclosure movement. You know, the disclosure movement in the UFO community is this idea that the government knows, you know, that there are these secret alien bases and they know the truth and they're keeping it from the public and and so on. And this is, of course, behind a lot of the congressional interest you know that you see today and and then they'll, they'll interview an air force pilot or a military professional or something and i'm just like I'm, I'm thinking inside i'm trying to hold back but what i'm actually thinking inside is these are the last people in the world i would ask about what a <laughs> ufo is i mean i mean air force pilots are wonderful people but they're basically jocks in two billion dollar, you know, pieces of compu flying computers, they 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 are not they are not John Price, you know, or Jeff Price. They're not the people who I would ask personally about what a UFO is. Um, and it's the same with congressmen and senators and politicians. I'm just like, they don't know. They don't know anything. You know, th this is crazy talk, and. It's also my frustration. So like when NASA puts together a team to understand these things, guess what? They don't hire any humanists or historians or philosophers. Mm. It's all scientists. And I'm just like, Ugh. there we go again. Mm -hmm. There we go again. It, this is not going to go well. And And it's not that the historians or anthropologists or philosophers know either, John. I'm not I'm not suggesting we somehow have the answers and all they have to do is talk to us. But what I am saying, if they talked to us, if they really took us seriously, they would not do it like this. Yeah. And and we're talking about national security. We're talking about millions or potentially billions of dollars. So this is not some little topic. Um this is a huge topic. And we are mishandling it in the most profound way. And there are people who could tell us not to do that. 
Back so, to Superman. Yeah. Because that's that's what I, I just I had that thought about Clark Kent Superman dynamic that well superman superman by the way is an alien <laughs> yes you, you know he as as i say he's he's a he's a crashed alien from the occult is what he really is i mean Krypt, krypton is just greek for secret or or occult that's what it means so he's literally a crashed alien from the occult that's what superman is that's what the myth is about um and again that just gets erased um and you know God, that's exciting. Well, it, it's cool. It's like, wow, if only people knew that, if only people talked like this, it, it would be exciting. But of course, it's not. It's because they don't talk like this. They don't think like this. No, and so, uh, to kind of weave some of these things together, we were talking earlier about the paranormal. And what I wrote down was how the Christian myth, you write a lot about this, is a paranormal myth. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a myth of the paranormal. And how yeah. odd that... So two things I want to go into, because I, I want to be mindful of kind of where we navigate, but d talking about the paranormal and Christianity is a good um, diving board to di to get into that. But but also the ways in which, in modern times, Christianity has become a kind of ideological container to hold together, to quote you, middle-class white America... In, in these strong tribal containers, uh, because nobody that would be kind of looked at as Christian today is really taking seriously the myth itself. They, they're extracting these little parts. So pick, pick a thread there. I, th I think, first of all, I grew up in the Christian tradition. I, I think I might be some kind of weird, secret, Gnostic Christian, you know, to this day. Um, <laughs> I think Christianity got a lot of things right. Um, I think it got a lot of things very wrong. Um, the whole tradition is very much what I call the humanist too. If you know something about the history of Christianity, you know that it was driven by debates about the nature of Christ, what we call Christology. And where the tradition lands is that he was fully human and fully divine, mm -hmm. which is essentially what I mean by the humanist too. Yeah. Um, except here's the difference. For the Christian tradition, there's only one fully human, fully divine figure mm. who's ever been on the planet. I happen to think everyone's fully human and fully divine. So it's a kind of it, it's a kind of heretical Christianity in some ways. And certainly Roman Catholicism, which is the tradition I grew up in, has had a long history of trying to discern what we call the paranormal. And it's linked it to sanctity. But it's also been really careful and suspicious about it. And too often, certainly in Catholic history, even more so in Protestant history, paranormal phenomena have been linked to the devil and to demons. And I think that's a serious, serious mistake. Um, so that's that's really my, my critique. Um, I think by demonizing these things, we create demons. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think they're demonic I think they're human and I think demons are also human by the way I think they're expressions of suffering and trauma and all the things you probably know way, way better than certainly I do um, and I think we need to treat those with compassion and not, not judgment or, or, or the kinds of the, the ways that, that a lot of Christianity has dealt with this stuff 
So that's that's my basic critique mm-hmm. of Christianity. And but also the embrace of it. I mean, I think I embrace aspects of Christianity and also criticize or critique others. And I think that's that's part of the tradition too. Well, this goes into your whole theory about there's there's Christianity and there's the way in which that myth gets filtered through each individual and subgroup and gets uh, essentially parts of it get extracted to support a particular belief system that that now we're seeing a, a real fall from grace. You know, people are really struggling with, as you note in the book, they're leaving Christianity. Well, my, the young people in my classes are leaving institutional religion in droves. Yeah. And the reason they're leaving is it's just a kind of moral protest. You know, they're sick and tired of the bigotry and the hatred, particularly around gender and sexuality and race, mm-hmm. that they see... Um, um, modeled and and put in extreme forms in the religions. They just don't want want nothing to do with it, and 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 so it's a kind of moral protest. Um, and I, of course, I share that. I think that's that's a that's a that's a good response for a young person. I'm not sure it's a good response for an older person um, who needs to engage the culture and the society. But but it certainly makes a lot of sense as a young person. Well, and that that takes us to a quote that can broaden us into this part of our discussion where we get into these particular theories or lenses that you're seeing in the humanities that are um, have have threads of all the things that we're talking about. Um, Azaldua, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna look to you, hoping that you can help me pronounce. No, that's correct. It's Anzaldua. It's it's yeah. Gloria Anzaldua is the is the writer or theorist. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, and she says that humans fear the supernatural, both the undivine, the animal impulses such as sexuality, the unconscious, the unknown, and the alien, and the divine, the superhuman, and the God in us. And you're using a lot of these, let, let's talk about uh, several in particular, I mean, black uh, critical theory and queer theory. Um, I, 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 I want to engage these more modernized lenses to because yeah. people are having so many confusing uh, reactions to um, the modern lenses, which I, I, you'll say this, and you have said this, that we're talking about people that are outside of the dominant um, modes of existing that can see very clearly um, issues with the dominant authority. Mm-hmm. So speak to queer theory, black theory, black superhumans. I'm excited yeah. to dig into this. So, so the last chapter of the book, it's called Reality is Two, it actually deals with five critical theory uh, traditions. One is psychoanalytic, um, which is extremely radical, by the way, in terms of gender and sexuality. Uh, another one is feminist theory, mm-hmm. uh, which again comes out comes partly out of psychoanalytic theory, actually, not entirely. Uh, queer theory, which is uh, again um, a long meditation on on gender and its fluidity um, black critical theory which is um, really thinking about black people and the u.s and how they become marginalized by the broader culture and and how maybe these racial institutions are structural and maybe so deep we we can't fix them um, and then finally um post-colonial theory well, actually, there's another Eco. one too. Post, yeah, post-colonial theory, um, 
which is Gloria Anzaldúa, you know, mm -hmm. looking at the history of colonialism, particularly in the States again. And Gloria, by the way, was also a queer theorist. She uh, mm -hmm. she had a really rare sexual uh, condition in which she began to menstruate when she was a little girl, by the way. And she she always inhabited this, this sort of queer Chicana lesbian identity that she writes about a lot. And then finally, eco-criticism, which is another critical theory around the environment and the human relationship to the environment and global warming and the de destruction of the forests and, and, and so on and so on. So all of these critical theories I address quite explicitly in the book. And I basically say that they're all right. They're all correct. You know, they're correct. Um, I cut my teeth on psychoanalytic theory in graduate school and in my early life. I spent 20 years writing about gender and sexuality. And there were two schools of thought when I was young. One, it was two schools of thought within feminist critical theory. One was what we called the revolutionaries and one was what we called the reformers. And the revolutionaries basically said, no, the reformers basically said the religions can be fixed and addressed through gender. We can we can make them gender inclusive and we can, you know, ordain women and talk about um, queerness in a way that, that is positive and nurturing. The revolutionary said, no, you can't. <laughs> uh, it, it's hopeless. These traditions are so patriarchal. They're so misogynist. They're so anti-same-sex that there's, there's no way to fix them. Just let's start over. Let's, let's do something. So mm. I'm actually more in the second camp. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, part of why I stopped going to church was I just felt it was hopeless. Um, there was no way to reform my tradition around gender and sexuality. I, you know, I had daughters and they were never going to see the day where the tradition was truly just and, and inclusive. I just quit, John. I just, I have, you know, in this life, at least I have one life to live. I may, may have many lives, but in this one, I've got one and I don't have time for the Catholic church to catch up with what we already know, frankly, to put, to put it bluntly. Um, and I think the same is true around queerness, around race, around ecology. I think our cultural and religious traditions are simply irredeemable. Uh, I think they're, they're the problem. Uh, and I'm not sure that, I, I'm pretty sure we can't fix the situation with those traditions. Um, and so I happen to be an, a big advocate of critical theory in any guise whether it's psychoanalytic or feminist or queer or race or eco-criticism. I just think these things are correct. Um, so the question for me is, okay, where do we go from here? And this is what the superhumanities is about. And it basically what it says is we need all these critical theories, but we also need a vertical dimension. We need to talk about that vertical dimension and integrate them into our theories. And so, for example, the Black critical theory, uh, first of all, it's not new, John. When I when I hear politicians talking about it, I'm like, what are you talking about? This, this is the water we've swam in for decades. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the water I, was I swam in and was trained in in the 80s, for God's sake. You are 40, 50 years behind 
the curve, folks. Um, and that's before you get to psychoanalysis or feminism, which are 70 or 120 years old. I mean, it's just like crazy talk. Um, so I just, I think humanists are um, way ahead of the time on this. So, but what I don't think they do well is integrate the vertical. So for example, in psychoanalysis, Freud wrote a lot about telepathy, for example. Telepathy happens in psychoanalysis. Um, psychoanalysts haven't dealt well with that, <laughs> mm -hmm. to put it mildly. Um, you know, in terms of black critical theory, there's a lot of superhumanisms. There's a lot of black superhumanisms. Black people express ways of knowing and being in the world that are essentially paranormal and magical, frankly. And, you know, we have the birth of something called Afrofuturism, uh, which was coined in the 90s, and is essentially a fusion of technology and a kind of futurism around Black people. And it's in art and music and film and literature and all kinds of things. Now, I think it's very hopeful. It's very, it's spot on. But I also think Afro-pessimism is spot on, which is this idea that the structural forms of racism are just so deep that we can barely even move them. You know, I, I was trained in a culture, John, that was also anti-Black, India, uh, where caste is very much structured around skin color. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think racism is just an American. Well, I know it's not just an American thing. It's a, it's a global thing. Anti-Black racism is a global problem, not, a, not just an American problem, although it's very much an American problem as well. Um, but there's a lot of Black superhumanisms that I want us to integrate into that. Same with Gloria Anzaldúa and post-colonial theory. I mean, you read Gloria and oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I mean, that, that being was out there. You think I'm out there. Gloria was way out there. And uh, <laughs> and she's at the she's at the heart of, of post-colonial queer theory in the US. You know, I mean, and glory be to, glory be to Gloria. I mean, I, I just think she's wonderful. Um, same with eco-criticism. There are a lot of voices in eco-criticism that are essentially talking about a kind of mystical unity and and paranormal abilities that manifest in the natural world. And mm -hmm. I just think they're right about that. I just think, yep. And environmental work or ecological activism can be really depressing in a, in a kind of literal clinical way, but it can also lead one to philosoph philosophical positions that I think are essentially religious or spiritual. And, um, so again, the message of the book is to do both. It's not to just talk about the vertical and forget the critical theories. It's to know, listen and read and practice and embrace the critical theories and talk about the vertical. Um, that's really the message of the book. That's what, The superhumanities are the humanities, but in a way that just acknowledges the super and that changes everything, I think, actually. It sure does. The two the two things that come first of all, I I, I want to take you up on your thread and find a kind of expert to speak of each in each of those dimensions. I, yeah. I really like that you enumerated those five. Yeah. Psychoanalytic, I understand more because that's my my wheelhouse. But the the other four, I'm I'm eager. There are a couple names in there. I'm gonna mine. Um, 
But there, there, something that comes to mind, of course, that we're seeing a lot of is the non-binary dimension of what is happening socially, and this, yeah. the way that gender is is yeah. activated so much, and it's certainly being literalized and in, in, in concerning ways, uh, and and some very healing and healthy ways. Uh, would 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 you speak to this? You've been writing writing a lot about gender and sexuality, but what are you seeing in the social space regarding this movement of non-binary? Gender. Yeah, I don't claim to understand it, John. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm an old person. And, but I know what I do know is that, and I think this is often forgotten. Young people can talk about being non binary because previous generations fought these battles. Um, you know, the feminists were arguing against the culture in the 60s and 70s, and the queer theorists came into four in the 70s and 80s. And that was my generation, by the way. And we suffered. Yeah. We paid, we paid dearly sometimes for those ideas. And so when young people invoke, you know, the non-binary to damned, I of course want to affirm that, but I also want them to recognize that there's a history there. And there there are generations of people that went before them that fought for these these ideas and these rights um i don't know i don't know and i don't want to speak to i mean i have non-binary students and i simply want to affirm them and and help them um self-identify as that i don't i don't i don't feel capable of questioning that or of of analyzing it that's up to them they need to do that mm -hmm. You know, they really, they really need to do that. And, um, and that takes time, John, I don't, I don't expect that to happen tomorrow. That's beautiful. And a good reminder, Jeff, because I, I think part of what I'm hearing in most of what you're talking about is the value of an experience. Yeah. And I also there's a more I, I hope you hear a moral impulse. I mean, the bottom line is I love people. And I think the humanities love people. And I want to affirm people, particularly people who don't fit into whatever the paradigm is, or the or the social system is. But I also love the people holding up the social system, <laughs> you know, the people who are who are sort of being accused of everything. I mean, I'm like, well, they're people too. Um, so I, you know, I used to get in trouble with some of my graduate students because I, you know, I, I used to work on essentially rich people and, and their, their spiritual movements. And I was just like, oh, yeah, but rich people have spiritual lives, too. You know, it's not these are not demons or monsters. These are <laughs> these are these are people. Um, so I, I, I guess I, I again, I. I want to do both and I. You know, I, I love evangelical Christians. I, I, I think they're wrong about so many things, but I'm really happy to tell them they're wrong. And some of my most memorable events were essentially public debates with evangelical Christians on campus. I just think they're great. I, and they take they take the questions seriously. It matters to them. There's a lot at stake, and. So I, you know, I want to talk to everybody and and 
because I think, I mean, it sounds cheesy, but I think I actually love everyone. It sounds uh, beautiful it, is what it's yeah. saying. I mean, I, I think it's wonderful. It's a great reminder of our, what should be our set point on some level. I, I think so. And, and of course, lots of people do bad things to other people. And I don't want to affirm that, of course, but, mm -hmm. but, um, but people, you know, people are people. And, um, and this is where the paranormal comes back in, by the way, frankly, because one of the reasons I think the impossible is such a, a productive category is actually everyone has these experiences. <laughs> they, they don't, they don't follow racial or gender or sexual or national or cultural or frankly religious lines. They they just don't. They do not behave along any of these identity markers. And you know, that gives me hope. Um because I can, you know, I can talk about them and talk about these stories with with really anyone. Yeah, you are and you are not these categories yeah yeah and un, you know fortunately or unfortunately and this will t i think this is something we've all talked about before but they also don't follow moral lines by the way yeah <laughs> you know um that's that's a whole nother thing but it's a good thing right yeah we could <laughs> use a whole conversation for that yeah yeah what were you gonna say though what was the, about the moral line i wasn't gonna say anything because it'll just get me into trouble and <laughs> It will, it will take us too far afield, and I we don't have time for them. Well, and so. and I gotta say, you made a couple references in the book about some of these the, the the moral and the mystical and these people that we revere and look up to, and some of the really confusing. Certainly, I mean, it usually plays out in taboos, but the sexual aspects of ways that people behave. So I, yeah. I won't uh, certainly go into it, but I do want to at least with you here uh, acknowledge and appreciate that you are so willing to talk in such a considerate and loving way about complex subjects that can can really stimulate a lot of concern for, for people. And I think you're... Yeah. And it's not just that, you know, impossible events happen to immoral people doing bad things, but they also happen in events that are completely amoral. Mm. You know, so as far as I can tell, a car accident is an entirely amoral event that you don't want to happen. But guess what? Remarkable things happen uh, when people are in car accidents. Same with heart attacks. Um, mm. Same with um, a lot of psychedelics, frankly. I mean, the, the molecule doesn't care. Um, you know, it's kind of like when I stick my finger into the socket over here, which I don't do, by the way. But if I did that... Uh, guess what? Uh, it's gonna knock me on the floor. Uh, so is that a moral thing? I don't. I don't think so. I don't think that has anything to do with morality. I think that's just what electricity does. And so I, I think a lot of this is like that, frankly. And um, I think that bothers some of us. It doesn't bother me, but I think it bothers some people. Well, Jeff, every time I talk to you, it's a return to uh, to to being to being in the pool of the impossible and, and working to not need to understand or conceptualize, but just experience. And uh, I have such, I, I'll put a value judgment on it, but such positive and expansive experiences when I encounter your work. Mm -hmm. So as we close, I'm, I'm just closing with gratitude, man, as always. Thank you. Well, it's, it's a better world, isn't it? <laughs>
<laughs> I think so. Yeah, it's yeah. way, way more interesting. And uh, it's. I think it's also morally and spiritually better. Oh, man. Amen. Well, thank you. Yeah. So well, thank, thank you, John. Thanks for doing this. Oh, yeah, all the time. Sway